Hello, I'm Seth Stevenson. Welcome to Who Runs That? Today we'll be talking about Elf Beauty, a makeup and skincare brand that found success selling trendy products for a dollar each on the shelves of Walmart and Target. With us will be Tarang Amin, CEO of Elf Beauty. In our conversation, he talks about what it's like to be a man running a makeup company. Yes, he does try the products on himself. About makeup trends in the YouTube era. And about what it's like to be a dad telling his young daughter she doesn't need to wear much makeup while also selling beauty products to the world at large. After the break, Tarang Amin, CEO of Elf Beauty. Tarang Amin, welcome to Who Runs That? Thank you. Great to be on. So we're talking about Elf Beauty today, and happily for our purposes, you run that. So uh, please describe your company for somebody who's not familiar with it. What do you make and who do you make it for? Sure. So Elf Beauty has been around for 15 years, and we make high-quality cosmetics and skincare products at an extraordinary everyday value. And who's the target for this? Is there a certain demographic that you're trying to reach with your products? Uh, yes. I mean, mainly women, but we're, we're a perfect brand in terms of twice as developed amongst millennials, overdeveloped amongst Hispanics, African-Americans, Asians. But probably most significantly, we appeal to young, diverse beauty enthusiasts. So these, primarily women, are really defining the entire category and um, and absolutely love beauty products and love our value equation. So let me ask you a sort of a naive question about your product. How do you make makeup? What's in makeup? What materials are in it? Where do they come from? Where do you get them from? Yeah, so the insight the founders had 15 years ago is a lot of the core ingredients in most cosmetics brands are fairly standardized. You know, I, I hate to say it, but there aren't that many new molecules being invented in cosmetics. And so you have a you know standard set of ingredients. A lot of componentry is also standard. Yet what they noticed is most of the market would mark up their products at a pretty high price just to deal back either in trade spending or marketing. Um, and so what they decided to do is they took their cues from fast fashion, is introduced this brand really with a radical idea, which is 15 years ago, they decided to sell cosmetics exclusively online at $1 price points. People thought they were crazy. You certainly couldn't sell cosmetics back then over the internet, and and you certainly couldn't make money at a dollar, but they were able to figure it out, mainly because of this insight of a lot of the ingredients are standardized to the extent that they really focused on high quality and this great value. Uh, consumers would come to the brand versus the other way around. And um, our ability to quickly formulate and design packaging, componentry, and put it all together is is also one of the key drivers of our business. We can usually go from an initial idea to selling in our direct channels in as fast as 13 weeks. And last year, I think we launched over 128 new products. How does that compare to some of your competitors? Yeah, some of the legacy players in our category could take two to three years to come up with a product. So that speed is a real differentiator. And then um, similarly, you know, some of them will only launch a couple dozen products a year versus kind of or us regularly over 100. And a lot of that goes back to our consumer. Our consumer loves uh, new ideas and uh, trying new products. So now let's say you're a woman who started using makeup before the YouTube era. I feel like a lot has changed now that we have people on YouTube giving makeup tutorials and there are influencers showing you how they use your makeup. If you're someone who's maybe not of this younger YouTube generation, what might you not know about the world of makeup right now? 
Well, I think, you know, one of the biggest things is how much easier it is than I would call it prior generations. So if I just look at the difference between my wife versus my 24-year-old daughter, when my wife was first learning about makeup, you know, she had to go to the department store. It could be a little intimidating, have to get the makeover, um, go through that entire experience. Whereas when my daughter started learning about makeup, she could go right on YouTube and anything she wanted to learn, whether it be YouTube or looking at her favorite vlogger, she could learn instantly. So the accessibility and the ease at which you can look at and get tips and experiment is is just so much easier that it doesn't really take much. And it, it, in our category in particular, uh, there's just a tremendous amount of interest. It's how most people now are figuring out kind of what they want to do and how to do it. Yeah. So and, and in terms of going fast, I would think that you'd want to be able to spot trends that are happening, not just from your own customers, but from all over the place. How do you go about spotting a trend, identifying something that's happening in makeup that you want to jump on? Yeah, well, first of all, I think a lot of it is who we hire and have in our company. So, you know, while you're talking to a guy here, about 85% of our company is women, 80% are millennial, you know, 65% are diverse, you know, in short, the very same young diverse enthusiasts that we seek to serve. So first, kind of build a company full of the consumers where we're, we want to serve, and then two, trust their instincts and their curiosity in learning and looking at different places. So a lot of the ideas come from our own employees who are regularly engaging with our community on ideas that they want. And so we'll look anywhere. We'll look at, you know, what's going on in prestige, what seems to be trending from trends there. We'll, our, you know, we have members of our team that regularly go all over the world and look at different trends from different markets. And, um, and then we, we trust our partners as well, whether it be our retail customers, whether it be our store associates. Uh, there's just a wide source of knowledge, but it starts first and foremost of having a company full of young, diverse enthusiasts. What is the fastest that you've ever made a product from concept to finish? The fastest, uh, I think so far, it's about 13 weeks. We, we have a number of products that we've done that fast, but you know we keep getting faster. Four and a half years ago, when we bought the company, I think on average, it took us about 35 weeks to get to market on average. We're now down to 20 weeks. Um, and so we keep getting faster, mainly because our consumer uh, is getting faster and, and wants things even faster. What are the parts of the process that you've really compressed that are so much faster when you go down from 35 weeks or whatever to 13 weeks? What are the parts that are easiest to trim the fat out of? And what are the parts of the process that are, are really tough to speed up? Sure. So I think probably the biggest enabler is doing things concurrently versus sequentially. So I grew up kind of in the consumer space and, you know, most processes would be, you know, marketing would have the concept for a while and then it'd go over to R&D, they'd work on product formulation, they'd go from there to product concept fit and eventually tech transfer. And, And what we tend to do is when we start talking about an idea, We'll get uh, Oakland, New York, and Shanghai on the same video at the same time, talk the concept, start talking the formulation approach, start talking the componentry, you know, how we want to go about kind of the manufacturing process. And we'll do that concurrently. And in being able to do that, you pick up a great deal from a speed standpoint. We also, many of us have kind of um, lean manufacturing uh, backgrounds. So we'll always look for like, where's waste? Where is something just sitting in a particular spot? And why is that? Um, So I'd say, you know, continuing to look at that, continuing to look for places where you can move things along uh, without taking shortcuts. So, you know, the part that we can't really get past is, for example, stability testing, making sure kind of the formulation and componentry 
go together, but we'll do a lot of that, you know, concurrently and we'll continue to look at how can we go even faster and still deliver high quality. What is stability test? I'm just imagining something that's instable. What ha- does, the, does the makeup yes, explode? Right. So what if happens? you think about a formulation, so let's think of a cream or a liquid product, you want to make sure that there's no interaction or the interaction between that and the componentry it's in or the formulation itself is stable, that it doesn't you know, grow microbials over time or have mold or any other core issue there. And so it's really important to kind of you know, test that, age it, put it at different temperatures, make sure that that formulation remains stable over a long period and over different temperatures and environments. And so that requires, obviously, a great deal of testing and making sure you do that right. What's like the touchiest product you make, the product that's hardest to keep stable? Oh, well, the good news is all of our products are highly stable, as we'd never introduce them <laughs> in the marketplace. But I'd say things that, you know, have um, greater amounts of liquid or water in the formula where you, you just don't want environments where things can grow in. What are your most successful kinds of products right now and which kinds of products or categories are, are maybe lagging a little bit right now? Sure. So I'd say, you know, one of our most successful products is we have a line of uh, primers. These are face products that, you know, think of it almost as if you were painting your house. You first start with a primer and then you put the top coat on. Similarly, primers, you know, really allow you to kind of smooth the skin. It's great for adhesion of kind of makeup. And we have America's number one primer. So we have a bigger share in primers than, for example, Maybelline would have in mascaras. And those have done extremely well for us. And I think it it ties into that theme of I really want to have, you know, the right canvas to, you know, put on my other makeup products with. And so that's done extremely well. Uh, Our brushes, we have the highest share of brushes in the U.S. and we have really great brushes. And then our skincare range, our skincare range has done really well, even though it's relatively new. We didn't enter skincare until a couple of years ago. All right. So this brings us to a discussion about marketing. And I read one article in the media arguing that maybe you've been too reliant on word of mouth, maybe you've been too slow to put real money behind marketing. What is your general philosophy about marketing and how Elf Beauty can best use marketing? Well, you know, we've long said that, you know, this is a reinvestment story. In the in the beginning, it was really about building the right team and infrastructure. And then over time, we'd want to put more against the brand. And we have a tremendous opportunity to put more against marketing. The, the only difference I would say is our model is fundamentally different. So I think some people confuse our desire to spend more against the consumer and building the brand with we will have to spend at the levels that some of the legacy players do at over 20%. That's just not our model. We're going to constantly make sure we have an extraordinary um, value and, and high quality, and that'll be our primary purpose. But, you know, we have some pretty effective tools that say that we could probably spend a little bit more and have some cost savings to pay for it and bring more consumers into our franchise. Because I think one of the things that's a real advantage for us is, you know, we have the highest value ratings in our category amongst the highest retention ratings. So if we can get more people to try ELF, you know, it's a really great proposition for us. So we will invest more behind the brand. That's absolutely what we hope to do, but we will do it in a different way than, you know, maybe a traditional brand would. Right. So does investing more meaning, mean putting ads on cable TV? Does it mean putting ads on, on uh, YouTube? What, what, or does it mean something else? 
So for us, it means something else. Our approach has primarily been through social and digital engagement, and so bringing people to our site. Uh, you know, one of the most effective programs we have actually is a program we call Beautyscape, where we rely on micro influencers. So if you went online, there's a number of people who have followings um, because they're a real enthusiast in the category and have looks and tips and things that they. Can share with others, and so we'll take some of these influencers, and for the cost of a plane ticket and a hotel room, we'll get them together. We'll show them some of our new products. We'll help kind of build their community, and they in turn are just incredible advocates for us. So it's a highly efficient and effective kind of program of using these influencers to you know really talk about what they love and how to use our products. How well can you measure the reach you get from buying that micro influencer a plane ticket? How do you measure that reach, and what kind of reach do you think you're getting? So we can measure. For example, we did a beautyscape event in New Orleans, where we took a number of our micro influencers. We took them there, and then we can measure the reach coming out of out of that event of how many times did they post, how many people did they reach, and if I remember right, it was almost like 180 million impressions that were generated just from doing that one event, and so. You know, we can then measure the ROI of like how much do we spend to kind of get everyone together to, there, and and what do we see, and that's you know one way we can measure it. Another way we can measure it, we'll sometimes do a collaboration with an influencer. So Whaley, uh, one of the influencers that we've worked with, um, is known for her lashes, and so we developed a false eyelash kit with her, and that was sold at at Ulta Beauty. And uh, we can measure how well that product did with her getting behind it. So you pointed out before that a lot of your executives are women and often women of color and that that's an advantage for your company, for your product. So, you know, we've been talking here for a while. And I will say, as I said before, as a man, I have trouble enough even conducting an interview about a makeup company. I, like, I feel really underinformed. I feel like it's not something that's really close to my personal experience. But here you are, you're a man who's running a makeup company. So I'm curious to hear from you, what about your own identity do you think either helps or hurts you being the CEO of a beauty company? Sure. So I think first and foremost, I think the biggest skill or what I can bring to the company is assembling the right team. And I've got, you know, 27 years of doing that in the consumer space. And so really, you know, I, I think out of... 180 corporate employees. Uh, we've hired 165 of them in the last four and a half years. So the the biggest impact I can make is make sure we have the right team members and the right, you know, passionate, talented people. And then the second biggest impact is making sure that they're working really well together. So that I'd say that's number one. Um, the other thing I would say is really making sure that we have the natural curiosity, both myself. Uh, as well as everyone in the company, are we learning from others? Are we learning from our own consumers? Do we are we curious in terms of all the different things that we could be doing? And if you have that, there's a lot you can make up for me at least in in not being a woman in a in a category mainly consumed by women. But a lot of my career has been that way. I've been a lot of num number of categories I've worked over time. I haven't been the target, but I have a deep appreciation for it and certainly rely on on the passion and expertise of those who really do know it. Have you become really comfortable talking to women about makeup and how they use makeup? I have been. It's a key part of my job. And it's not just women. Increasingly, it's also men. It's people that I will see when I go visit 
retail stores, in our own stores, and I love engaging with uh, consumers and learning kind of what they love, what are they looking for. Um, it's a key driver of mine. How do you see men using makeup these days? Well, I think one of the first places that you see men using um, makeup and, and beauty is, is starting with skin. So I think there's this recognition of everyone needs good skin care. And that's a great entry point, at least for us. Our Beauty Shield and skincare line has been a, a great way of getting kind of men into the Elf Beauty uh, franchise. Uh, in addition, I mean, you have... You have a broad range. I talked about our benefit in terms of our primers, and it's a great product to kind of smooth the skin, allow for better kind of other products. And, you know, increasingly you see in different categories more and more kind of interests, whether it be brows, whether it be overall uh, face. Um, there's, I think there's more interest. I wouldn't say, I mean, women still are the main driver of the category, but I don't know if, you know, over time it's going to be so gender specific. Do you ever catch flack for being a man who's running a, a beauty company? No, I have. Well, I think the, the, uh, probably from my daughter, I think when I was appointed CEO of Elf Beauty, she said, dad, my whole life, you told me I don't need to wear that much makeup and they make you a CEO of a beauty company. So other than her, not really that many other people have, have given me grief about it. Well, that, that raises an interesting point. I mean, one of the sort of broad criticisms of the beauty industry is that it's enforcing these standards on young women who feel like they need to change, you know, the way they look. How do you deal with that, particularly, you know, when, when a daughter who, you, who, as you say, you know, you've, you've told her maybe don't wear as much makeup. How does it feel? Um, how do you think about whether or not you're enforcing standards? Well, I, I think the key part for us is what is it that we project and what is it? And how inclusive are we? So I think, you know, there, there has been sometimes, I would say, looking in on the industry, almost this unattainable standard or particular look that one had to be. And I think the, our way around that is first and foremost, be and in, including um, almost exclusionary, both in terms of kind of the price points, as well as kind of um, the level of kind of prestige and, and what that projected. And so our approach has been pretty much the opposite. First of all, make great products, but make them incredibly accessible where anyone can try them. Everyone is welcome. Uh, second, in terms of what we portray, don't put that unattainable standard of beauty or, or particular one look, you know, highlight a lot of our community. And, and even if you look on our, on our social channels, it's primarily the people who are, using us experimenting and trying, and you'll see an incredible diversity of not only our consumers, but their looks, their passions. And so it, there isn't this one kind of cookie-cutter approach of this is what the standard is and you have to live it. It's, it's really following our community and celebrating them. Do you try the products on your own face? I do. I we have uh, we do innovation reviews every Friday, and a key part of that is as the products go around is, you know, needing to kind of feel experiment see them of course i rely on the experts <laughs> that are often in the room that know a lot more about them than i do but um it's tough to have a primer go around and not not try it and see how it feels on your skin what like will you put on an eyeshadow you know i have done it before but i'm not very good at it and it it, it was kind of like i don't want to make it a novelty either so i i trust their uh, our employees who know a lot more about it and particularly in our innovation team you have had slowing growth in 2018. How do you account for that? Yeah, well, any business, I mean, you know, I've been in the consumer space for 27 years and, you know, I was 
even brands. I was part of the team that built Pantene from about $50 million to $2 billion. I'd say any consumer brand will have periods. Even in that example, there are probably four different periods where we hit the wall or we saw something that we learned um, that made us actually stronger. And I, I, I don't believe I've ever had a consumer business that didn't go through periods where you're growing faster or growing slower. And I think in this particular case, you know, we've learned a few things. I think we can spend a little bit more behind the brand to make sure that our our voice isn't getting drowned out by others. Um, I do think, you know, for us, the importance of new products and making sure we have enough of our new products on on the shelves each year was another big learning. So, so I look at this as you know, a moment in time. And, um, you know, I think we're learning a lot of really great things that, you know, will, will allow us to be even stronger as we go forward. How come you had fewer new products on the shelves this year? Well, I think what ends up happening is we were, you know, part of, I'd say a lot of times anybody's kind of success opens opportunities. And so we've been quite successful given the growth of this business. I mean, this is a business that's grown, I think, the 20% Kager over the last five years. Um, and so as we've grown, we've also been rewarded with more space at many of our key national retail partners. So as retailers gave us more space, I think there's our model has always been we learn from our direct channels, make recommendations to national retailers, and then you know, keep going from there. And I think this particular year, we, we learned that, you know, we in hindsight, we probably didn't put enough of our new products on those shelves in terms of the interest that our consumers have. So we're learning from that. And I can tell you in 20, 2019, there'll be a lot more new products on on our Elf shelves. Now, you mentioned Kager. It's, I know that's compound annual growth rate. A lot of our lay listeners might not know what that is. Uh, Another concept that I think like the lay listener is intrigued by but maybe doesn't always understand is when an insider company makes a stock sale or stock purchase, it's like it's their own personal finances, but it's also it's it's publicly disclosed, so it sort of does this signaling. I know that you made you you sold one point two million dollars of stock in around that in twenty seventeen and then you bought about seven hundred thousand dollars in stock this year. What is how do you think about when you make these purchases, you know that they're gonna be public and disclosed? Do they send a signal? Is it just something you're doing for your own finances? What when an insider buys or sells stock? What does that mean? Well, I think sometimes people look at it as a signal of, you know, what do you believe? Um, a lot of times, though, it's unrelated. So in 2017, as part of, after our IPO, we did a secondary offering. And so just normal, you know, I'd, I'd call it diversification of one's portfolio. We sold some shares. Um, more recently, I bought shares because I actually thought that the market overreacted on ELF and that our shares were undervalued. So, you know, one of the best ways I know how to kind of say, what do I really believe in that is, is purchase our, our own shares. And, you know, in this particular case, I think on ELF, um, I'm the second largest shareholder in the company. Our family owns, I think, close to 11%, and we've bought 92% of the shares we own. So I also see it as a way of kind of really showing kind of strong alignment with our shareholders. It's This is something I really believe in, and, and I believe in it so much, kind of put my own money where my mouth is and uh, and bought most of our shares. I know that um, in addition to your, your online sales and you have some sort of house store, brick and mortar shops that you're, are your own, but you also are in huge retailers like Target and Walmart. And I'm always fascinated by the battle for shelf space in these places. How do you make sure you are getting the shelf space you want and the placement you want in an attractive display that you want at these giant retailers? Well, I think first of all is having a really compelling proposition. So both at Target and Walmart, 
we are their most productive brand when it comes from dollars per linear foot of space. So we, I think we let our numbers speak for themselves. We're a brand that consumers really want. And, you know, I think both Target and Walmart reward brands that are serving the needs of their consumers. So by having the most productive brand, having a great consumer profile and more innovation than anyone else, those are the types of currencies that large national retailers look at and, and in turn, I think over time, have rewarded us with both you know, more doors as well as more space. When you're in a Target, do you go over and look at your display and just make rearrange things, make sure everything looks good? I've done that in every category I've ever been in. It, it's, <laughs> it's a little bit of a disease. I can't help myself, but I will go rearrange shelves anytime I'm near one of our products. <laughs> I don't know if that's the best use of your time, Tarang, as CEO of the company, to be actually at the re- in the retail point of purchase and rearranging <laughs> shelves. <laughs> well, they won't let me go in too much, but no, I would argue it is one of the best uses of my time. You know, the the eighty over eighty percent of our business is sold through large national retailers, and unless you're taking a look at how your brand is presented, what's working, what's not, unless you're talking to the sales associates in those departments on not only what's selling or what are people asking for, who else is doing well, I I think it it just plays into that natural curiosity anyone needs to make sure that you you keep getting better. Does the target sales associate ever come over and say, sir, what are you doing? Why are you you rearranging (laughs) our shelves? I'll usually approach the sales associate first and let them know who I am and and try to learn a little bit more. And then they don't quite mind as much because they know I'm helping. All right. Well, let's talk about you a little bit. Um, Tell us a little bit about where you come from. Sure. I'm of Indian ethnicity. Both my parents were born and raised in India. I actually was born in East Africa. My dad used to work in Kenya, so I was born in Nairobi. Spent part of my childhood in uh, Kenya and Uganda. When Idi Amin came to power, we're part of the uh, for Exodus out uh, when he kicked all the Asians out and we settled in the Washington DC area most of my professional career is large consumer packaged goods companies I was with P&G for a number of years with Clorox but I tell people uh, a lot of what I learned about business was between the ages of 14 and my mid 20s because like a lot of uh, immigrants the way we rose were as entrepreneurs so when I was 14 years old we sold our house and took every penny we had and we bought our first motel on Route 1 in Alexandria, Virginia, moved right into the manager's apartment. And our business model as a family is we'd find you know, these distressed properties, we'd fix them up, we're good operators, we'd use the cash flow to kind of invest in the next, and kept building that up um, till about my mid-20s when my dad wanted to do nonprofit work, ended up selling that business, and my parents have lived off of that ever since. And the only reason we're telling the motel story, because it never really shows up in any of my corporate bios, is really uh, two uh, reasons. One is as great a training ground as P&G was after grad school. I tell people, you know, everything I know about cash flow, economic profit, how, how you treat people really came from those early entrepreneurial days. And the second is um, I was able to take a lot of those, I call it small business entrepreneurial skills, to much larger scaled environments. And I think has been, you know, probably one of the keys to my success over time is being able to remember everything I learned from there and and apply it to different businesses. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more from Tarang Amin, CEO of Elf Beauty. I'm going to move on to our lightning round. I know we're we're running short on time now, so I'm going to ask my last several questions here. Meetings, are you pro or con? I am pro meetings as long as they're efficient and not too many. Open plan office or office with a door that closes? 
open plan office collaboration is absolutely essential to our to our environment. But don't you, we have here at Slate an open, open plan office, and my concern about it is everyone puts on their headphones in order to not be distracted by all these great offices, so it becomes somehow much less social and informal and buzzy than, than it was before. Do you, do you ever see that happening or worry about that? You know, we we don't see it as much as one would think, and mainly because I think we, we pump in a lot of white noise, so it's not that distracting as from an environment standpoint. And then two, we have quite a few kind of conference rooms, huddle rooms, collaboration rooms, so people can do that without necessarily kind of disturbing their coworker. Uh, if I told you tomorrow that you're fired and you can never again be an executive of any type with any company, what would you want to do with your life? Uh, that'd be very sad. I think I would, I'd want to um, coach uh, my, my passion for teams. I would, I would want to see how I could help others be more effective and grow the way others have done for me. All right, Turing, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you talking no, with us. No, thank you. This was I fun. really appreciate it as well. That's all for today. Who Runs That is produced by Cameron Drews and Cleo Levin. TJ Raphael is the senior producer for Slate Podcasts. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcasts. If you like us, please rate and review us in the Apple Podcasts app or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can email us at whorunsthat at slate.com. I'm Seth Stevenson. Thanks for listening.